Hello, and welcome back to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Conner. As always, thank you very much for listening. Where we left off, we saw the opening maneuvers of the French campaign in Egypt. The French Army of the Orient disembarked near Alexandria. From there, they had to make the arduous 200-plus-kilometer journey overland to the Egyptian capital city of Cairo. All along the way, the French soldiers were subjected to all sorts of privations, dehydration, overhydration, scorching heat, and hostile activity from the local Mamluks and Bedouins. In a set-piece battle underneath the shadows of the Great Pyramids, Napoleon broke the forces of the Mamluks. Their leaders, Murad and Ibrahim Bey, fled. Ibrahim fled east towards Syria to summon Ottoman reinforcements, while Murad escaped southwards to the countryside of Upper Egypt, from where he conducted guerrilla operations against the French, and generally made himself a thorn in the side of the occupying French army. Nevertheless, things were going pretty well for Napoleon and company. The main enemy force had been decisively defeated, and now they occupied their capital. The French were indeed in high spirits, but all that was to change. Some two weeks after the Battle of the Pyramids, Napoleon received a devastating piece of news. The French fleet under Vice Admiral Francois Brouess had encountered a British squadron of warships led by Sir Horatio Nelson. Nelson, in what has gone down as one of history's greatest naval battles, decimated the French fleet, sinking most of its vessels and killing the unfortunate Admiral Brouess, along with thousands of French sailors. The defeat at the Battle of the Nile was devastating, to say the very least. The navy was Napoleon's lifeline, the only way he could receive supplies and reinforcements from France. With the British now enforcing a blockade of the country, the only way out was surrender, a prospect that was unacceptable to Napoleon. Instead of giving in to despair, he doubled down. He resolved to forge a new empire here in the Middle East, saying at the time, quote, So, we are now obligated to accomplish great things, and accomplish them we will. We are obliged to found a new empire, and found it we will. The sea, of which we are not masters, separates us from our homeland, but no sea separates us from Africa and Asia. There are plenty of us here, and we will not be lacking in men who can be recruited to run the place, and we will not be lacking in munitions which, if necessary, can be manufactured by the savants and the engineers." End quote. If Napoleon was to achieve his goal of establishing his new empire in the Orient, he first had to cement his rule in Egypt. On September 5th, he founded a new divan, a representative body. Unlike the previous divan, which only represented the people of Cairo, this divan was meant to represent the entire country, consisting of delegations of three sheikhs, three merchants, and three commoners, from each of the Egyptian provinces under French control. Their first order of business would be a complete overhaul of the taxation system, after all, the valuables that had been confiscated from the Knights of Malta were aboard the French flagship, the Orient, when it had exploded in spectacular fashion. Napoleon needed to recoup his losses. Under this new system, taxes were levied on everyone, from the imams to the farmers to the merchants. This was all done in the spirit of revolutionary equality, but historian Abd al-Rahman al-Jabardi denounced these laws out of hand as robbery, albeit done by legal means. Another action of Napoleon's during this time was to officially found the Institute of Egypt. It was time to put the sum 170 scientists, artists, mathematicians, anthropologists, and etc. to work. The Institute was to be modeled along the lines of the Institute of France. It would consist of four specialized commissions, 
mathematics, physics and natural history, political economy, and literature and the arts. The Institute of Egypt convened for the first time on the 24th of August, 1798, at their new headquarters in the abandoned mansion of a Mamluk Bay. The mathematician Gaspar Monge was elected as its president, and Napoleon was elected to serve as its vice president. Physicist Joseph Fourier was elected as its secretary. While the stated purpose of the institute was to bring the ideals of the Enlightenment to Egypt and to restore it to its classical glory, more immediate and mundane matters concerned them in these first few days. At the end of their first meeting, Napoleon asked them a series of questions. Quote, How can we improve the Egyptian legal system? Does Egypt possess the raw materials necessary for the manufacture of gunpowder? How do we go about rendering the water from the Nile safe for drinking? Is there any way to improve the ovens the army uses for baking bread? How can we go about brewing our own beer? End quote. These were problems that had to be solved if the French were truly going to be in Egypt to stay. Another important task meted out to the Institute was the publication of a new newspaper, The Courier of Egypt. The Courier was essentially a propaganda outlet for Napoleon and his generals, extolling their great victories in an attempt to alleviate the defeatism that crept into the ranks following the Battle of the Nile. The Courier also contained editorial pieces, advising Frenchmen of the local customs, and plenty of advertisements for the new French businesses that were popping up all around Cairo, restaurants, cafes, and the like. One thing the Courier contained very little of was news of foreign affairs. Any news coming in by sea was intercepted by the British. Thus, even the highest-ranking French officials were left completely in the dark in regards to external developments. The appearance of Ottoman warships among the British blockade prompted Napoleon to write frantically to the Directory for any updates on the diplomatic situation. Specifically, he inquired as to the success of Foreign Minister Talleyrand's diplomatic mission to Constantinople, capital of the Ottoman Empire. Despite their current hostilities, the Ottoman Empire and France had long been allies of one another. This alliance was initially forged in the 16th century, and it was in large part based on their mutual antagonism towards the Habsburg monarchy of Spain and Austria. When the French revolutionaries declared a republic and executed King Louis XVI in 1792, nearly all the monarchies of Europe banded together in a coalition and declared war against France, except, crucially, the Ottoman Empire. This inaction on the part of the Ottomans can be interpreted as realpolitik, or simply as indifference on their part. As incompatible as revolutionary ideals were with the Ottoman form of government, the Ottomans, unlike the other nations of Europe, did not fear that the French would attempt to export their ideology into their lands. As I mentioned in the first episode of this series, when Napoleon first set off on his Oriental adventure, the Directory of the French Republic dispatched their foreign minister, Charles Maurice de Talleyrand Perigord, to Constantinople. It was hoped that he would be able to somehow explain away France's invasion of Egypt and prevent the Ottomans from joining the ever-growing anti-French coalition. The truth of the matter, however, was that Talleyrand had never even set foot outside of France. The task of schmoozing with the Sublime Porte, or the Ottoman central government, fell to one Pierre Ruffin, an interpreter who had become the highest-ranking French diplomat in the Ottoman Empire simply by virtue of the fact that the previous ambassador had recently retired and had yet to be replaced. As early as May 1798, Ottoman spies in Paris had caught wind of the French plot to invade Egypt. Ruffin was summoned before the Ottoman foreign minister to explain himself, but he could offer no explanation. 
The Directory had done a better job keeping knowledge of the expedition from their own people than from foreign spies, apparently, and as such, Rufan legitimately had no knowledge of these plans. All he could do was offer his reassurances that France had no intention to take any military action against its most steadfast ally, and that a senior diplomat, Talleyrand, would shortly be arriving to explain everything. Three months passed, and Rufan's excuse was proved demonstrably false. Napoleon invaded Egypt, conquering Alexandria and defeating the Mamluks at the Battle of the Pyramids. Talleyrand still had yet to arrive in Constantinople. However, the Sublime Port still took no action. The Ottomans were quite hesitant to break off relations with their most powerful European ally and leave themselves open to the machinations of the British and the Russians, whom they quite justifiably distrusted. Still, the fact of the matter was that a foreign power was currently occupying their sovereign territory, and that could not go ignored indefinitely. In early September, news of the British victory at the Battle of the Nile reached Constantinople. Now that French defeat seemed all but inevitable, Ottoman Sultan Selim III seized on the opportunity and declared war against France. Rufan and the rest of the French diplomatic corps were placed under arrest and taken to the infamous Yeticule dungeon. The Ottomans reluctantly formed an alliance with Russia and Britain, effectively forming the basis of the second coalition that would be at war with France in a year's time. Selim III also issued a series of firmans, or decrees, which denounced the French as atheists, whose mission was to spread anarchy, and exhorted all faithful Muslims to resist them. These decrees of the sultans were especially threatening to the French position in Egypt. This is because the Ottoman sultan was not merely a secular ruler. He also claimed the title of caliph, civil and religious ruler of all Muslims. And while the institution of the caliphate had, over the centuries, become more of a symbolic role than anything else, Salem III did not hesitate to invoke his authority as caliph, something that held great significance for anyone with even a cursory knowledge of Islamic history. Napoleon, meanwhile, was obstinate in his efforts to ingratiate himself to his new subjects. Towards that end, two seemingly perfect opportunities presented themselves, only a month after the capture of Cairo. The first was the flooding of the Nile on August 18th. The rhythm of life in Egypt since ancient times had been directed by the Nile River. When the Nile overflowed its banks, the inhabitants of the region could expect a bountiful harvest. If not, famine was likely. Therefore, when the measurement device known as the denilometer indicated that flooding was indeed inevitable, the inhabitants of Egypt held a ceremony celebrating the occasion. On August 18th, Napoleon, at the head of a congregation of local dignitaries, led a procession down to the bank of the river. Over 200,000 people were reported to have been in attendance. French military bands played as Napoleon's engineering corps worked to breach the dike that held the Nile's waters back from the canal which encircled the city. When the waters finally burst through the dike in a torrent, the crowd cheered hysterically and the French cannons fired a celebratory volley into the air. As was tradition, an effigy of a virgin was cast into the river as a symbolic offering. If this sounds the slightest bit barbaric, just know that in ancient times it was an actual virgin being sacrificed instead. After this, Napoleon gave a speech, and afterwards oversaw a military parade through the town square, which was followed by a pyrotechnic display. Napoleon's secretary Bourienne contends that the Nile ceremony was an absolute success, a propaganda coup for Napoleon, but this is disputed by Al-Jabardi, 
who asserts that enthusiasm was low, and that the Kyrenes saw Napoleon's little propaganda stunt for exactly what it was. Nevertheless, Napoleon also took it upon himself to organize the festivities for another major ceremony, the birthday of the Prophet Muhammad. This was a perfect opportunity for Napoleon to demonstrate his amity towards Islam in particular. Napoleon was very eager at the opportunity, and spared no expense. Apparently, he even decided that he would attend the festivities dressed in native garb. Borean described the ensuing scene thusly, quote, He entered in his new costume. Scarcely was he recognized than he was greeted with great bursts of laughter. He took his place at the table calmly, but he cut such a poor figure in his turban and oriental robe, looked so gauche in his unsuitable costume, that he very soon decided to take it off, and never again did he feel tempted to make a second appearance in the masquerade." End quote. Despite Napoleon's embarrassment at this whole episode, the festivities proceeded apace. By Napoleon's orders, a French military band played outside the El Azar Mosque at all hours of the day, and grand fireworks light up the city skies every night. One French officer described the scene on the ground, quote, Men bearing aloft flaming torches are vast chandeliers containing more than 40 lamps, others singing ornate outlandish songs, accompanied by even more ornate and outlandish music. Such was the procession which paraded throughout the town the whole night through, crying and creating an infernal din. The public places were filled with little sideshows featuring dancing bears, trained monkeys, male and female singers enacting tableau, women chanting poems, jugglers who made live snakes disappear in their containers, children performing the most levacious dances, wrestlers taking part in single combat." End quote. On September 22, 1798, another similar opportunity presented itself to Napoleon and the French. According to the French Republican calendar, it was the first of the month Vendemiaire, year seven of the revolution. In other words, it was the seventh anniversary of the founding of the French Republic. The Festival of the Republic was cause for great celebration for the French, and what's more, it presented Napoleon with an opportunity to demonstrate the splendor of French republicanism to the Egyptian people. Previous attempts to instill in the locals a sense of French republican virtue had failed. Earlier that summer, when Napoleon attempted to mandate the wearing of the cockade, a ribbon with the three colors of the French flag that was worn by the revolutionaries back in France, he was met with widespread resistance. The locals saw the cockade for what it was, a symbol of their submission to France. But Napoleon was not one to be deterred. On September 22nd, military bands played patriotic French music from dawn until dusk. Napoleon had ordered the rather hasty construction of a pyramid made of cheap canvas, upon which were inscribed the names of all the Frenchmen who had fallen in battle with the Mamluks. Al-Jabardi wrote that he, and the other Egyptians, were rather unimpressed by the pyramids, as they viewed pyramids as pagan monuments that held no real resonance for modern Egyptians. Napoleon also had constructed a triumphal arch in the center of Cairo, upon which was inscribed the Shahada, or the Muslim Declaration of Faith. There is no god but God, and Muhammad is his prophet. The French who were in attendance likely could not read the Arabic inscription, but the Egyptians, it was hoped, would read it, and be led to believe the rumors that the mass conversion of the French army to Islam was imminent, but more on that later. The army assembled and carried out a number of martial exercises and drills which were intended to intimidate the locals, after which they lined up for review as Napoleon read out a speech to them. Apparently this speech was not well received by the troops, 
as Napoleon accidentally implied that they were doomed to die in Egypt, far from their fatherland. Such a blunder was unusual for somebody of such rhetorical ability as Napoleon, but he soon recovered. Invoking the fatherland once more and informing the soldiers that the some 40 million citizens of the French Republic were relying on them to secure, by their blood and sacrifice, peace, prosperity, and civil liberty for the people of Egypt. No doubt the average French soldier was, at this point, beginning to harbor doubts as to what exactly it was they were doing in this strange land in the first place. Many wished to return home. Such feelings were exacerbated by the loss of the fleet at the Battle of the Nile. Eyewitness reports attest that when Napoleon shouted, Long live the Republic, at the end of his speech, not a soul responded. The festivities continued with such spectacles as horse racing, dances, and more pyrotechnics displays. The Egyptians were no more astonished by Napoleon's theatrics than his own soldiers, and the festival of the seventh year of the Republic ended without having made that great of an impression upon anyone. In his famous account of his travels in Egypt and the Levant, the French nobleman, the Comte de Volney, wrote that any potential French conquest of Egypt would necessarily involve fighting wars against three different opponents. The first would be the British. The second would be the Ottoman Empire. The third, and most challenging, would be the Egyptian people themselves. This was intended as a warning, but Napoleon seems to have taken it as a challenge. Napoleon saw himself as fighting an uphill battle for the hearts and minds of the Egyptian people. During this time, he held several regular meetings with the clerics of the Al-Azhar Mosque, the oldest and most prestigious Islamic institution in Egypt. At these meetings, these Muslim clergymen told him what he must have known already, that it would be nearly impossible for Napoleon and the French to legitimize their conquest of Egypt without the use of religion. Napoleon wanted the clerics of Al-Azhar to leverage their influence to get the imams of Egypt to give their traditional Friday sermons in his name, rather than that of the Ottoman Sultan, Selim III. In response to this request, one of these clerics, the Sheikh Abdullah al-Shakari, replied, quote, you want to have the protection of the Prophet. He loves you. You want the Arab Muslims to march beneath your banners. You want to restore the glory of Arabia. You are not an idolater. Become a Muslim. A hundred thousand Egyptians and a hundred thousand Arabs from Arabia, from Mecca and Medina, will arrange themselves to you. Drilled and disciplined in your methods, they will conquer the Orient for you, and you will reestablish in all of its glory the fatherland of the Prophet. End quote. Apparently, Napoleon took their recommendations into serious consideration. As mentioned in previous episodes, Napoleon's personal religious beliefs are a matter of historical controversy. Napoleon was, in a word, spiritual, but not religious. He believed in some higher power, but he was not a staunch believer in the specific tenets of any religion. That being said, he was a great admirer of Islam, believing it to be both more rational than his native Catholicism and a more useful tool for political organization. Would Napoleon have been willing to fully embrace Islam, at least outwardly, to consolidate his position in the Middle East? It is hard to say for certain, although given what we know about Napoleon, such a scenario is not entirely unthinkable. There was also the issue of the army. Napoleon's personal conversion would mean very little if his army did not follow suit. The soldiers of the French Republic were a very religiously heterogeneous group. Among the ranks of the Army of the Orient were believers and non-believers of all sorts. Frenchmen who still retained their traditional Catholic faith, staunch atheists, and deists like Napoleon himself. 
many of Napoleon's officers, especially the more militant atheists among them, disapproved of Napoleon's perceived dalliance with Islam. A few members of the Army of the Orient came away from their encounter with the Islamic world as Muslims themselves. The most prominent of these French Muslim converts was General Jacques-Francois Manu. Manu fell in love with an Egyptian woman named Zubeda al-Bawab. He was informed by her father that, if he hoped to marry her, Manu would have to convert to Islam, which apparently he was more than willing to do. He married Zubeda sometime in 1799, and took on the Arabic name Abdullah, meaning servant of God. However, the example of Abdullah Manu was rather rare in the Army of the Orient. A general attitude of militant secularism and anti-clericalism pervaded the army. Napoleon had to have known that it would be a hard sell. He replied to Sheikh al-Sharqawi's proposal that there were two great hurdles to his army converting en masse to Islam, their unwillingness to get circumcised and their unwillingness to forgo wine. For the cleric's part, they were willing to bend the rules of religion ever so slightly to make provisions for the French army's conversion. A local expert in Islamic law ruled that circumcision was actually not a necessary component of one's conversion to Islam. As for the wine aspect, the clergy ruled that Frenchmen could continue to consume wine upon their conversion, but if they chose to do so, they would be damned to hell. Ultimately, these hurdles proved insurmountable, and Napoleon seems to have given up on the idea of attempting to convert his army. On a personal level, Bourienne reported that Napoleon, despite contemplating the idea seriously, never actually converted to Islam, as he never once, quote, attended mosque or prayed in the Muslim manner, end quote. However, to appease the clergy and the populace, Napoleon kept up the pretext that he and his army might be willing to convert to Islam any day now. General Dominique Dupuis wrote back to a friend in France, quote, We celebrate here with enthusiasm the festivals of Muhammad. We fool the Egyptians with our affected attachment to their religion, in which Bonaparte and we no more believe in than that of Pope Pius the defunct, end quote. The local Muslims, for their part, also did not buy into this ruse. Across Cairo, the locals had taken to jokingly calling Napoleon Ali Bonaparte. In spite of Napoleon's obstinate efforts to win the support of the Egyptian people, the country was still rife with unrest. French garrisons throughout the country were under constant attack. Small-scale revolts erupted regularly, prompting the French to use valuable manpower and resources to put them down. What's more, Murad Bey and his host of Mamluk warriors were still somewhere in the countryside of Upper Egypt, evading the efforts of General Desai to bring them to a decisive battle. But more on that later. Mohammed al Khorayim, the civilian governor of Alexandria, had been caught corresponding with Murad Bey. He was arrested and given the opportunity to pay a fine to secure his release, but he proudly refused and was executed for it. Bedouin raiders frequently robbed French couriers making communication over land even that much more difficult. Agents operating on behalf of the Ottoman Sultan propagated Selim III's declaration of war against the French throughout the region. Copies of the decree were given to Islamic clergymen, who were for the most part more than happy to preach the decree's contents to their congregations. All the while, the population of Cairo grew increasingly frustrated at abuses suffered at the hands of the French occupiers. The military government under General Dupuis held regular executions. The taxes and regulations imposed on the Egyptians were viewed as unacceptable impositions. The city was on the brink of rebellion. According to Al-Jabardi, the inciting incident of the ensuing Cairo revolt 
was a new property tax passed by the Divan. The tax was viewed as such an affront that the ulama, or Islamic scholars, decided amongst themselves to incite the populace of the city to revolt and cast off the French yoke. At dawn on October 21, 1798, the Musains climbed atop their minarets, ostensibly to issue their calls to prayer. But, unbeknownst to the French, they issued calls to arms instead. Al-Jabardi recorded the exact words of one of these Musains, quote, O Muslims, the holy war is upon you. How can you, as free men, agree to pay taxes to the unbelievers? Have you no pride? Let all those who believe that there is but one God take themselves to the Al-Azhar Mosque, for today is the day to fight the infidel. End quote. Many in the city heeded this call. They immediately sought to secure whatever weapons they could, clubs, axes, hammers. Very few of them had firearms. The French military governor of Cairo, General Dupuy, received word of the uprising and rode out to investigate. He was forced to halt when a recently constructed barricade blocked the street in front of him. Then, all of a sudden, an unknown assailant ran behind him and struck him in the back of the head with a club. He died soon afterwards. A mob broke into the home of General Caffarelli Dufalga, killing his guards and four of his servants, but not the general himself, who was with Napoleon at the time. Any and all Frenchmen, be they soldiers or civilians, were fair game for the rebels. The mob also directed their fury towards the Jewish and Christian residents of the city, whom they saw as collaborating with the occupying Frenchmen. They killed many and ransacked their homes and businesses. The riots went on well into the night. Napoleon, who was, at the time, conducting an inspection of some nearby fortifications, was absolutely furious upon hearing news of the revolt. He returned to Cairo that evening to find the streets of the city mostly abandoned. The rebels had taken up positions near El Azhar Mosque and had erected barricades in the surrounding streets. The following morning, Napoleon ordered his artillery stationed in the citadel overlooking the city to fire upon the sacred mosque. Al-Jabardi wrote that, quote, The firing from the citadel continued until the very foundations shook. The bombardment was so terrible that the inhabitants of the city had never seen its like, and, raising their faces, they cried out in supplication to the heavens to save them from this misfortune. End quote. Some of the sheikhs inside attempted to intercede with Napoleon, begging him to stop the bombardment, but Napoleon is said to have replied, quote, God is too late to save you. What you have begun, I shall finish. End quote. Napoleon eventually ordered the bombardment to stop, and ordered a detachment of cavalry under General Thomas Alexandre Dumas to move in and finish the job. The rebels, shaken quite literally by the artillery barrage, surrendered en masse. In spite of Napoleon's orders to the contrary, the Al-Azhar Mosque was not razed to the ground, and its inhabitants were not massacred. But, Al-Jabardi described the subsequent desecration of the most sacred mosque in all of Egypt. Quote, they entered like demons of the devil's army. They rode into the mosque on horseback and hitched them to the altar. They trod in the mosque with their boots, carrying swords and rifles. They scattered all throughout the compound, ravaging the students' quarters and ponds, smashing the lamps and chandeliers, and breaking the bookcases of the students. They plundered whatever they could find. They treated the Quranic volumes as trash, throwing them on the ground and stomping on them. They soiled the mosque, blowing their spit in it, urinating and defecating in it. They guzzled wine and smashed the bottles in the central courtyard. Whoever they encountered still in the compound was robbed or slaughtered. 
They committed deeds in Elazar which are but little of what they are capable of. For they are enemies of the religion, and malicious victors who gloat in the misfortune of the vanquished. End quote. It is estimated that 3,000 Kyrenes, rebels and civilians alike, were killed during the revolt. The French, on the other hand, lost only between 100 and 300 men. Among the dead were General Dupuy and Napoleon's aide-de-camp, Joseph Sulkovsky, who was killed while attempting to deliver a message to General Dumas from across the battlefield. The day after the revolt, some 60 Kyrene officials assembled at Napoleon's headquarters to beg for clemency, fully expecting to be executed for their part in inciting the revolt. Once again, Napoleon publicly extended his mercy to those who had defied his will. No more blood needed to be shed, he declared. He would see to it that any relics looted from Elazar would be returned, that the desecrated mosque would be ritually purified, and what structural damage it suffered would be repaired. This public display of magnanimity was exactly that, a display. That night, he ordered all armed rebels who were taken prisoner to be executed in secret and their bodies dumped into the Nile. He also ordered the immediate executions of 15 ringleaders, whom he considered to be most responsible for inciting the revolt. Only six of these men were dragged out of their homes into the chopping block. The other nine had managed to flee the city. As I mentioned earlier, following the Battle of the Pyramids, Murad Bey and his host of Mamluk warriors fled into the countryside of Upper Egypt. A quick point of clarification, Upper Egypt refers to the southern portion of the country, so-called because the Nile River flows from south to north. Anyway, almost immediately following the Battle of the Pyramids back in July, Napoleon dispatched 3,000 men under General Desai to pursue Murad Bey, drive the Mamluks from the country, and secure Upper Egypt for good. This was no small feat. Murad Bey's host numbered between seven and 8,000, and he enjoyed the support of local elites in Upper Egypt. What's more, the French hadn't even the vaguest notion as to where Murad Bey and his men could have been exactly. Desai's men were made to wander into inhospitable territory, populated by inhospitable inhabitants, guided by unreliable locals and outdated maps to reach a final destination they did not know the location of. But General Desai was determined, and he drove south along the Nile as quickly as he could, hoping that he would catch Murad Bey unaware. After having traveled about a hundred miles upstream, Desai received word from his scouts that Murad Bey had been spotted in a nearby village. Desai ordered his men to immediately march in the direction of the village. To get there, they had to cross twenty miles of flooded farmland and by the time they reached the village three hours later, Murad Bey had caught wind of their plan and already packed up and left. And so it was that this exact scenario would be repeated several times in the preceding weeks. Desai would learn of Murad Bey's location, and by the time he and his men were able to reach said location, Murad Bey would have already fled. Outmaneuvering Desai, Murad Bey made his way back north to the town of Fayum, within striking distance of Cairo. Desai's division arrived on the outskirts of the city nearly a week after having received this intel, but this time they found Murad Bey and his men still there, encamped upon a hill. Now confident in his numerical superiority and in the defensiveness of his position, Murad Bey was trying to bait Desai into a fight. Desai, not willing to give up this opportunity to defeat his adversary, took the bait. As Napoleon had done at the Battle of the Pyramids, Desai ordered his men to form two infantry squares, and slowly make their way up the hill, adjacent to the one the Mamluks were encamped on. 
But before they could make it to the top and take up defensive stances, the Mamluk cavalry descended upon them. The men in the square formations were ordered to hold their fire until the enemy was 10 yards away, so as to inflict maximum damage. This backfired somewhat, and some cavalrymen were able to penetrate the smaller of the two infantry formations. However, the French ultimately were able to hold their position. About midway through the battle, Murad Bey sprung the trap. Four large cannons, previously hidden behind a nearby hill, opened fire on the French. In this critical moment, Desay ordered his men to charge the cannons with their bayonets. Incredibly, these men were able to maintain their composure under fire, and were able to capture two of the cannons, prompting the crews of the remaining two cannons to run off, followed by the remaining Mamluk cavalry. As he had no cavalry of his own, Desay could not give chase, but nevertheless, the French had won the day, inflicting some 400 casualties on the Mamluks, while themselves suffering only 40. Following the battle, Desay's men occupied Fayum itself, and Desay intended to take advantage of the downtime to allow his troops some time to rest from this last strenuous few weeks. Unfortunately, his ranks were decimated by disease, to the point where he felt the need to write to Napoleon, quote, Sickness has reduced us to an embarrassing state. This eye disease is a scourge that has deprived me of 1,400 men. When I march, I have to drag behind me a hundred of these poor unfortunates, who have been rendered almost completely blind. But give us the means to go on, and we will go on. What do you want us to do? End quote. Napoleon was still uneasy in his position in Cairo, and sent only 400 men to reinforce Desay. This would hardly be enough, as when Desay finally departed from Fayum, he had to leave behind a force of 500 to garrison the city. The local population, instigated by the Mamluks, rose up against the French garrison at some point in November. The French were able to hold out against them, but Desay was now convinced that if he were to accomplish his goal, he absolutely needed more troops than what Napoleon was willing to give him. On the 1st of December, he traveled to Cairo to confront his commander-in-chief in person. He returned to his men with Napoleon's word that he would provide ample enough reinforcements to keep Desay's troop count at 3,000, as well as a cavalry detachment numbering 1,000. With the army now reorganized and recuperated, they soon went back on the march. As the army traveled further and further southward in pursuit of Murad Bey, they entered territory that no European army had entered since the reign of the Roman Emperor Augustus. In Upper Egypt, they discovered the forgotten world of ancient Egypt. Temples, statues, obelisks, and other such ruins, long since abandoned. The army of the French Republic marched through locations that we now associate most closely with ancient Egypt, such as the Valley of Kings. While the army was encamped at Thebes, once the capital of all of Egypt, Vivant Denon, an archaeologist accompanying the army, concluded, quote, The Greeks invented nothing. End quote. Many of the soldiers were fascinated by the ruins as well, and some even went so far as to carve their names onto the stones following the examples of Roman soldiers who had come before them over a thousand years prior. The expedition pressed on. In late December, Desay learned that Murad Bey had been spotted near the city of Girga and raced to catch him, but once again he arrived too late. Murad Bey and his men had fled the previous night. To Desay's frustration, he could not immediately give chase because, at some point, his army had outpaced the flotilla that was carrying all their supplies. He was forced to wait in Girga for the flotilla to catch up with them. All the while, Murad Bey was accruing reinforcements. He sent out a call to arms across the Red Sea to the Arabian city of Jeddah, imploring warriors to come and fight with him against the infidel invaders. 
Additionally, he bolstered his ranks by joining forces with Hassan Bey, another local ruler. All told, Murad Bey had 14,000 men at his disposal, as opposed to Desai's 4,000. With the city of Cairo now pacified, Napoleon decided to take advantage of the downtime to have an affair. This affair was not with a local woman. Napoleon, like most other Frenchmen, found Egyptian women to be, quote, unattractive if not downright repulsive, end quote. Bourienne recorded an incident wherein some half-dozen local women, said to have been renowned for their beauty and grace, were brought before Napoleon in the palace of Elfie Bay. Napoleon was intent on getting some sort of revenge on his wife Josephine for her infidelity, but the general was so disgusted by the Egyptian women's overwhelming perfume and Rubenesque figures that he had them sent away almost immediately. Instead, it was a French woman that caught Napoleon's eye. The woman in question was named Pauline Forest. Pauline came from a small village in southern France, where she met one Lieutenant Forest, an infantry officer in the Army of the Orient, as he prepared to depart France for Egypt. The pair married shortly before his departure, and Pauline decided to follow her new husband abroad. She stowed away aboard one of the ships, donning a soldier's uniform and hiding her mass of blonde hair in a cavalry officer's hat. For a soldier's wife to follow her husband on campaign was forbidden, but it was not exactly unheard of. Pauline was renowned by her husband's compatriots for her beauty. She had rejected the advances of a number of these men, but when she caught Napoleon's eye in the November of 1798, he would not be deterred. He dispatched one of his subordinate generals, Jean-Androche Junot, to make his feelings known to Miss Forest. Junot proved not to be up to the task, as he couched the proposition in rigid military terminology, and Napoleon's advance was rebuffed. Undeterred, Napoleon tried again, this time sending another general, General Gerard Duroc, to speak with Pauline on his behalf. This time, Napoleon sent his messenger with a gift of an expensive piece of jewelry, and from that moment forward, Pauline could always be found by Napoleon's side hosting events at his estate, and sitting next to him as they rode carriages to and fro on the streets of Cairo. But what was to be done about Pauline's husband, Lieutenant Forest? To get him out of the picture, Napoleon simply had him sent away. He entrusted him with a mission to relay a message to the directory back in Paris. When he requested permission for his wife to accompany him, his request was flatly denied. By Napoleon's reckoning, the mission of Forest's should have kept him away from Cairo for at least three months. But Napoleon's scheme hit a bit of a snag when the ship carrying Lieutenant Forest was intercepted by the British, and, instead of taking Forest prisoner, they simply repatriated him to Egypt. It has been suggested that British intelligence knew of Napoleon's affair, and wished to take advantage of their situation and send Forest back to his commander, in hopes that it would result in an open scandal for their French adversary. Upon returning to Egypt and learning of his wife's infidelity, Lieutenant Forest flew into a rage and savagely attacked his wife with a bullwhip, managing to draw blood before her servants were able to restrain him. For this brutal attack on his wife, Lieutenant Forest was harshly reprimanded for conduct unbecoming of an officer. Pauline demanded a divorce, which she was fortunately granted. Indeed, from this point forward, Napoleon seems to have made no great effort to keep his liaison a secret. Throughout the ranks of the army, Pauline became known as Bonaparte's Cleopatra. Napoleon, for his part, promised Pauline that if she were to bear him a child, he would also divorce his wife, Josephine. Whether fortunately or unfortunately, such a thing did not come to pass. 
At roughly this time, Napoleon, with hardly anything better to do, decided to embark on a long-planned expedition to the Suez. The purpose of this foray was to investigate the ruins of an ancient canal, which once linked the Nile River with the Red Sea, under the assumption that the canal could be rebuilt. On December 17th, he dispatched a division under General Bonn to reconnoiter the area. Napoleon himself set out from Cairo a week later, accompanied by his bodyguards, a few members of the institute including Monge, Berthollet, and Caffarelli, and his faithful secretary, Bourienne. Not accompanying Napoleon on this journey was his mistress, Pauline, nor did he bring along with him any aides to camp, cooks, servants, or any of his usual retinue. For food, he carried only three roasted chickens, wrapped in paper. Arriving on the shores of the Red Sea on December 27th, Napoleon wrote a letter to his ally, Tipu Sultan of Mysore. Quote, Citizen Sultan, you are already informed of my arrival on the banks of the Red Sea, with a numerous and invincible army. Eager to deliver you from the iron yoke of England, I hasten to request that you send me a report of the political situation in which you are. I also wish that you could send me some of your most able men in your confidence, with whom I may confer. End quote. By the time Napoleon's letter had reached its destination, the tiger of Mysore, Tipu Sultan, had been dead for nearly a month, killed by the British while defending his capital of Sarangapatna. But Napoleon knew nothing of this. He seemed to remain confident that his plans would work out just the way he intended, and that he would be able to link up with his esteemed ally, and together they would defeat the British in India. He expressed his desire to reopen the shipyards of the Suez, to build a fleet that would be able to reach India. Meanwhile, an excavation team discovered some stonework far off into the desert, which they interpreted to be evidence of the existence of said canal. Napoleon appointed engineer Jacques-Marie Lapère to conduct a thorough survey of the ancient canal, and the possibility of recreating it, although nothing would come of these efforts. The entire expedition to Suez would prove to be another waste of time. Napoleon would be given a reprieve from his restlessness soon enough, however. At this time, storm clouds were gathering towards the east, as the Ottoman Empire was assembling a massive army, with the intention of finally dislodging the French from their Egyptian holding once and for all. And that seems as good a place as any to leave things for the time being. Be sure to tune in again in two weeks' time to watch as Napoleon and the Army of the Orient once more go on the offensive and travel into Syria to fight the Ottomans. In the meantime, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or anything else you'd like me to hear, you can email me at historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can reach me on Twitter or Facebook, links to which can be found in this episode's description. Until two weeks from now, this has been the Historia Dramatica Podcast. I'm your host, Willem Connor, signing off.